Ephesians 5:18. What are you filled with? What are you filled with? And being a Baptist preacher, preaching in a Baptistish church to a mostly Baptistish people, I looked at our text today and I wondered how thorough this message really needed to be. And so, being Baptist, being thoroughly Baptistish, I thought I could get up and preach something such as this. Stay off the booze, amen. And we could call it a day. But because I, we are concerned about looking at the context and looking at Paul's overall argument, we know that he's not just talking about the external act of drinking a beer or drinking an alcoholic beverage. He says up in verse 15 to be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of, the opportun- of every opportunity because the days are evil. And we are being vehemently urged by the Apostle Paul who, out of a deep pastoral concern We're being urged to be mindful and careful about how we live because we have been given incredible privilege. We have been given incredible privilege uh, of, of serving the Lord with our lives, of serving him with our gifts. And in the midst of carrying that very important responsibility out, Paul reminds us that the Christian walk isn't going to be easy. We have a devil who wants to undo us, who in turn influences a world who hates us and does everything it can to sabotage our walk, to dislodge and distract our hope, and to undermine and if possible undo our faith. And if that wasn't enough, We live in a Romans 7 world and we indwell unredeemed bodies that have passions and temptations that, as 1 Peter 2.12 says, wage war against the soul. Indeed, the days are evil. Paul knew there are dangers and pressures and trials that make the Christian life difficult. And with the days being evil, it is required, it is of the utmost necessity that Christian men and women be soberly minded. Soberly minded. And if Paul is so concerned that we walk soberly, he begins thinking out what could threaten that sober walk. What could jeopardize them being careful and mindful and thinking seriously about eternal matters and the things that are really important? What could jeopardize their ability to make good, godly, discerning conclusions 
to the important questions and the important challenges of life. And so he draws a very, very practical, very important admonition in warning us of the very real, very destructive wastefulness that results in a bondage to alcohol. And so he says in the first half of verse 18, don't be filled with spirits. Or that's, that's my, that's my um, uh, first point. Don't be filled with spirits. And then he'll say in, in the second part of the verse to be filled with the spirit. Don't be filled with spirits, but rather be filled with the spirit. Let's read just one verse for today. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now notice in our first point, where Paul is saying, don't, don't be filled with spirits. Notice what Paul is not saying. Did he say, don't drink wine? Don't ever, ever have a beer or an alcoholic beverage or any kind of alcohol. No, he's not. He's not saying don't consume alcohol at all. He's saying don't be drunk. And there are uh, traditions that are born out of an attempt to mean well. There are traditions that have hap- that are found within some Christian circles, especially Baptist circles, that alcoholic beverages in, in all forms and in all capacities are strictly off-limits and prohibited. You, just, you, just, you don't ever even go there. And they might say that in the old world, you couldn't drink water alone, and that wine was necessary to mix in with the water to kill the contaminants in the water, lest you become sick and ill. And since we aren't in that situation today, since we can readily make clean and pure water available almost anywhere, we don't need to mix in alcohol. We don't need to consume alcohol like the ancients, <clears throat> like the ancients did. And that might be a logical and sound argument if it weren't for several passages that make clear that the consumption of alcohol can be a legitimate experience. It can be an enjoyable experience. And to my point today, it can be an experience that God approves of. I think the most clear example of this is in John chapter 2 where we see that Jesus did not make a bottle of Welch's. What did he make? Not an O'Doul's. Not a, what, what, what was that in the 90s, the Zima? He didn't make that. He made wine. And it was a good wine. So good that men who had already drank in a little bit could tell it was the good stuff. And I, and I just, I, I find this remarkable because Scripture tells us that Jesus was fully pleasing to the Father, that everything Jesus did was what was whatever was given to him by the Father, and everything he did pleased the Father and glorified the Father. And so 
by making this wine, he pleased and glorified his father. Psalm 104.15 credits God as the source of grass, which is in turn eaten by cattle and, and, and uh, produces vegetation and food for men. And, and, and then there's this line, and wine which makes man's heart glad. Amos 9.14 says that a man drinking wine made from his own vineyard was a sign that God had blessed and provided for that family. Jesus drank wine. He drank wine while dining with his disciples, while dining with tax collectors and sinners. And in fact, the fact the fact that uh, uh, he drank wine with his disciples, we know that in the Last Supper, communion was instituted by means of a loaf of bread and a cup. Exactly. Some people, you're surprised by who gets passionate about this stuff, but. What are you putting in that grape juice? In Matthew twenty six twenty nine, Jesus said, while holding the cup, while drawing everyone's attention to the cup of wine, he said that he would not drink of this again, of the fruit of the vine, until he drank it again with them anew in his father's kingdom. That cup of wine that he had looked forward to for so long to enjoy with his disciples foreshadowed an even greater cup of wine that would be enjoyed during an even greater celebration in the kingdom. There will be good and glorious wine to be consumed and enjoyed in the kingdom. And so please understand, Paul is not prohibiting the mere drinking of wine or alcohol in general he is saying don't be a drunkard very very important discrepancy to make do not be addicted to wine don't subject yourself to the bottle so that the bottle is lord and master over you and he draws upon a very I think a very easy to see observation in his explanation for prohibiting drunkenness. He says in he says in the middle of verse 18, here's why you don't be drunk, be filled with wine or drunk with wine. He says, for that is dissipation. And that's not really a word we use too much. I, I didn't hear anybody go, oh, no, not dissipation, not that. But if you allow me to explain what this word is, I, I think I think we, I think with just a little bit of work we can we can make sense of it. I grew up in the fog uh, where there was a really thick fog in the Sacramento Valley, and I was pleasantly surprised to see that the Snoqualmie Valley likewise has some really nice, beautiful, thick fog early in the mornings. And when the sun comes up and it bears down on that fog, what happens? It dissipates. It vanishes. It goes poof and disappears and it's gone. And that's exactly the word behind the word, uh, the idea behind the word dissipation. And so when someone is given over to drinking, 
to the point that it's consuming them. Quality of life and length of life has a way of dissipating. It has a way of just vanishing like fog under the warm morning sun. Aristotle spoke of this vice, and he said that drunkards were were those were prodigals who waste their substance and are in the path of ruining their own lives. They're prodigals who waste their substance and and are in the path of ruining their own lives. And maybe when I said that word prodigal, maybe your mind appropriately went to the infamous parable in Luke 15. And I say it's appropriate because that is uh, uh, that is one, one of three places where this word from which we get dissipation, it's one of the three places in the New Testament where that word also appears. Only this time, it's not a noun. It's used as an adjective. Luke fifteen thirteen. This is after the young man is given his estate or his inheritance. Long before he should have, by the way. But he's given his inheritance. And then verse 13 says, he squandered his estate with either prodigal or loose living wasteful living he squandered everything he had he just threw it all away and now this squandering of life isn't is it isn't limited this isn't a phenomena that you that you see only in cases of alcoholism really it includes any kind of substance abuse where Life is just thrown away. I think some of the more sobering things we you can look at is the, are those uh, before and after charts. When you see someone before they were introduced to this substance or that substance, and you see what can happen in as little as a year or two or three or four or five. And by ten years, they don't look anything at all like they did prior. Such a drastic and startling change in the eyes, in the face, in the skin, the hair, the teeth. quality of life and length of life that has just been squandered and wasted. Maybe you know someone who's squandered their life like that. Maybe there was for a period of time where you squandered your life like that and by God's incredible saving grace you were brought out of that. You know what it's like to look back with sadness knowing that nothing good came out of that addiction. And no matter how much you wish you could, you can't go back and undo what has been done. And that you will never get those years back. Paul is saying here, and this is primarily to the substance of the day. Alcohol was what has been the world's oldest substance abuse. It is in primarily regards to alcohol and wine that he says drunkenness dissipates lives. 
It wastes precious, God-given, valuable, irreplaceable life. And so the matter of being subjected or, or subjugated to alcohol raises the question, how do you know if you are, how do you know if this is where you are? How do you know if you have a problem? How do you know if you are a slave of the bottle and if you are consuming it, or if, if it is consuming you when you are consuming it, rather? How do you know that? Well, I have three, three suggestions. What, first, what does your conscience say? This is always the best place to start because God gave us a conscience for a reason. What does your conscience say? Do you feel even the slightest bit of guilt or wrongness? Is there any shred of a voice saying, maybe you shouldn't? Secondly, what do your friends and family say? What do those closest to you think about you when you reach for a glass or a bottle? Has anybody ever told you, Maybe you shouldn't. Third, what do your actions and your history of self-control say? Can you willingly go without it? Yes, alcohol consumption is lawful. Yes, it is permissible and it is allowed But an indication that it shouldn't be consumed is if one is unwilling and unable to say no and to abstain. And especially, here's a big warning flag, especially if one becomes passionate in defending that liberty. A man rises, or a woman, people rise up to defend that which they love. And a sign that a liberty has ceased to be a liberty but is now an enslavement is how they respond when that liberty is threatened. And so if someone becomes angry when you challenge them, that's a sign there could be a problem. That's an indication it is not a liberty anymore, but you are now talking about their master. A liberty is something that you can exercise it or not. Liberties can come or go. They can be done or not done at one's discretion. A master must be obeyed. A liberty may be, willing, may be willfully denied. A master cannot be denied. Can you go without So this, this is getting to the heart of the matter, I think. As, as Christians, we have been given a life to live, and by now it should be obvious that there is a certain way that that life ought to be lived. And there are qualities, and there are values, and there are principles that are to mark our life, and there are values and qualities and principles that are not to mark our life. 
by now. I, I hope you can see that the Christian life is not just to be walked in willy-nilly any way we want. But that we are to walk according to the pattern and the lordship of our Savior. And here's the point. We can't walk according to the lordship of Christ when we are harboring rival lordships in our lives. Paul is bringing up alcohol because it is a, it is a potential rival lord for some. And you cannot commit your minds. I mean, look, look at verse 15. We can't do verse 15. We cannot be careful how we walk. Verse 17, we can't understand or be in the process of learning God's will, which are both things we do with our minds, if we are squandering our minds away on mind-altering substances and dependencies. This is the heart of the issue. I hope you can see this goes so much beyond... Can I have a drink or not? It goes so far beyond the external act of consuming a, a beverage. If alcohol or, or any substance is controlling you and dictating the, the direction of your life, enforcing the, 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 the decisions you make, stymieing your Christian walk, undermining your marriage, sabotaging the use of your gifts, and their resources, which are given to you so that you can edify the body. But if, a, if an addiction to any substance is doing these things and ultimately ruining your life and, and bringing it to an unnecessary, early, and sad end, if alcohol is doing that, then, then you are, I think it's logical to see, you are not living or walking a spirit-filled life because there is something else filling you. We either do one or the other. We, 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 we can't do both. You either live for the liquor or for the Lord. You walk under His influence or under the influence of the bottle. You either think about what God wants and you use the faculty of your mind to bring the course of your life and the decisions you make into conformity with his will or you give yourself over to a substance that renders you mindless and makes you, if I can be blunt, stupid and squanders your estate and your resources and your talents and destroys your relationships, destroys your body, destroys your life. And if you give it time, if you give it the opportunity, it will escort you into an early grave. Alcohol does these things, or rather uh, drunkenness and an, and an enslavement to alcohol does these things. Paul says, be filled not with spirits but be filled with the Spirit. So that leads us into the rest of verse 18 and to our second point. Be filled, and, and I, I hope you see the, the but in the middle of the verse. That, that's, that's Paul's way of saying this is a one or the other. This is a contrast. It's not both. 
but be filled with the Spirit. And this this has been a problematic text for some because of a horrible, horrible tradition that we have at looking at individual verses stripped out of their context. And at face value, this phrase, filled with the Spirit, I, I think it can be difficult to understand. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? The Spirit is a non-corporeal, non-material entity. How do you fill yourself up with that? How does one fill himself up or herself up with the Spirit? Well, let me begin with what it doesn't mean. If you didn't know, I attended a Pentecostal church in my youth. And I've seen a thing or two that wouldn't you wouldn't see in a baptistish circle i've seen chaotic babbling i've seen praying in tongues i've seen people start laughing spontaneously and that laughing goes on and on and on i've seen thing uh spontaneous interruptions uh interrupt uh, a worship service I've seen people slain in the spirit where they just fall over and remain there till who knows how long. I've seen a preacher do some very bizarre things out of the ordinary, allegedly because the spirit was directing him and telling him to do so. I have seen people act like they are completely out of control. And you can, you can find videos of stuff like this o- online. Uh, Rodney Howard Brown, Benny Hinn, and numerous others. I think the most, uh, the most, uh, the, the, the best quality material I could, ha- I could tell you, direct you to would be uh, John MacArthur's Strange Fire. I think that's a great response to this movement. But you can find videos easily of men and women convulsing and shaking and cackling and wavering and running around the sanctuary, screaming, uh, waving banners and flags, falling over, uh, lying as, as, as if they were dead, all under the guise. These are all things that are espoused to be being spirit-filled or filled with the Spirit. These are all the things that apparently the Spirit makes you do when you're full of them. And if I can say with all seriousness and sobriety, I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny. This, this is no different. Their, their behavior, what they do, the, the way they conduct themselves is absolutely no different than if they were wasted out of their minds off of booze. Or any other kind of mind-altering substance, mindless babble, mindless laughter, chaotic rambling, stumbling over themselves. That has nothing to do with being spirit-filled because you never see a spirit-filled person acting even remotely like that in the pages of Scripture. In Acts 2.15 when the apostles were, they were thought to be drunk, mockers were saying that they were drunk. The context makes it very clear that they were speaking in foreign languages, which were clearly understood by those who themselves spoke their, those foreign languages. Acts 2, 6 and following says this. When, that, when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because, mark this, each one of them 
was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Mark this. How is it that we hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, Pontians, Asians, Phrygians, Pamphylians, Egyptians, the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. Third, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. Hysteria, the, the hysteria and the theatrics that passes for being filled with the Spirit today has absolutely nothing to do with being filled by the Spirit or with the Spirit. And I think adequately explaining what being filled with the Spirit means, I I think we can do that by drawing on Paul's own illustration of drunkenness. When, When a man is driving while intoxicated we have a phrase for that don't we if he if he is pulled over by the police and he's charged what is he charged with driving under the influence he is under the influence of of of, of an outside well i guess it's inside at that point he's he's under the influence of another agent something else has control of him. Something else is influencing him and is making a direct impact on how he conducts himself and directly influences what he can and can't competently do. While under the influence of alcohol, alcohol dictates the kind of path that man will take and the kind of fruit he will produce. That man does what he does because he is filled with an influencing agent, in that case, alcohol. So what Paul here is saying, using that as an analogy, he is saying, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with him in such a, in such a manner, in such a way that that the decisions you make and the priorities that you have, when others see them, it demonstrates to them that the Spirit of God is the prevailing and dominating influence in you. Now, what, what influence ought the Spirit of God to have in our life? Well, there's the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. I, ho- I hope... I hope if you're, you know, if, you're, if we're thinking big, biblically, we think about what, what, what does Scripture, where can I go to Scripture to glean from this? Galatians 5, 22, 23, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and everyone's favorite, self-control. And I think, I think the inclusion of that, word, uh, of, of that last quality itself is a, is a rebuke to all that nonsense I was talking about earlier. The Spirit gives you self-control, not chaos. So we would, we would, do, to, we would, 
we would do well to remember that's the fruit of the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit in such a way that as He is changing you, as He is working in you, you are bearing those things. You are producing His fruit. Being filled with the Spirit leads one to bearing His fruit. We would also do well to remember what kind of Spirit the Spirit is. What kind of Spirit is He? He's a Dan's like, I think I know the answer. I don't want to. He's a Holy Spirit, right? And so being filled with the Spirit would be the sanctifying process by which the Holy Spirit makes us holy. Where sin becomes more repugnant, less desirable, more, we, we, we begin to see sin for, for the sin that it is. And it becomes filthy in our eyes. And righteousness and holiness becomes more beautiful and virtuous and glorious and good. And holiness becomes something that we pursue. It becomes something we want. It becomes something we manifest. Being filled with the, with the Holy Spirit leads us to ourselves being holy. But, and I, and I credit this point to Pastor Don Green, with what Paul is saying here, being filled with the Spirit goes beyond matters of personal purity and personal holiness and personal virtue and personal godliness, which are all qualities that that ought you know i don't want to i don't want to downplay any of those things but what i want you to see is that being filled with the spirit particularly as it relates to what paul is saying here it it includes more than those things it includes more than galatians 5 22 and 23 spirit filledness if i can can i label that phrase spirit filledness comes out in how we relate to the enti- to the entire body of Christ being filled with the spirit is something that impacts the way you relate to the entire body of Christ it it, it impacts the way that you look at one another and relate to one another Now let me recap this great theme and show you where where this is where, how this can be so from what Paul has previously said is he has brought up the spirit the work of the spirit the focus of the spirit the concern of the spirit thus far already in the letter Ephesians 2:18 uh, I'm going to read uh, a part of verse 18 19 and 21 and I want you to see how there there are there is a theme of unity and there's a theme of the spirit so we both there's unity we both being jews and gentiles have our access in one spirit there's the spirit we have we have our access in one spirit to the father and then in verse 19 you are fellow citizens with the saints there's another there's another uh uh, um uh mention of of uh, unity and then 
verse 21, the whole building, there's unity, the whole building is being fitted together, more unity, as it's growing into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you are also being built together, more unity, into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So unity and the Spirit, both mentioned several times in those few verses. Uh, Ephesians 3, 5, you have the mystery of Christ. And the mystery was the disclosure that God was bringing two factions, two unreconciled factions together, right? That's the mystery. You, you don't see that in the Old Testament, but it was nevertheless in God's plan, and it's revealed in the gospel. You have that, that unity of Jew and Gentile. It is, uh, verse 5, it is, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. Where? By whom? How? In the Spirit. It was the Spirit's prerogative to reveal this, this God-unifying program of Jew and Gentile. Chapter 4 and following. And this, all the theology of chapters 1 to 3 serve as the foundation for this central thematic exhortation. Therefore, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all, and these are relational qualities. These are all qualities that impact the one another's and build one anotherness. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. And I, I think the one anotherness really, it's undeniable here. Showing tolerance for one another in love. And if you can't see unity here, being diligent to preserve the unity, oh, look at that, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you see unity? How, how un the theme of unity is so intrinsically tied to the work of the Holy Spirit. Am I, do you see that? Okay, this side sees it. Left side, do you see it? Okay. Chapter 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Have you ever wondered how you can grieve the Holy Spirit? I would say you definitely can grieve him. And this is what I have been taught. You grieve him by, by having a uh, nonchalant kind of, you know, whatever laissez-faire uh, attitude towards sin. I'm sure that grieves him. But what does the context say? Look at the context. Look at what is, look at the surrounding verses to chapter 4, verse 30. What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about sins. What kind of sins? Uh, it, it, what in what sphere of our lives do these sins take place? What kind of effects would these sins do? See that he's talking about relational sins that undermine unity and tear people apart. Because there, there are all kinds of sins Paul could have mentioned in that section. And he, 
takes us straight to sins that break unity, tear people apart, and pit one against the other. Verse 25, lying and perverting the truth tears people apart. Do you want, do you want to be with people who lie to you? Do you want to work with people and work alongside people and be partnered to people who you can't rely to be truthful? I, I don't. Lying tears people apart. Verse 26, being sinfully angry tears people apart. I mean, th- this isn't rocket science. Sinful anger does not bring people together. Verse 29, speaking, or uh, uh, I'm sorry, verse 28, stealing. Stealing doesn't bring people together. Stealing and taking what rightfully belongs from someone tears you and them apart. Verse 29, speaking unwholesome and rotten words, being a, being a spring, a, a wellspring of filth and derision, being someone who, who never has anything good to say, Someone who's always cynical, always critical, always tearing people down, never lifting them up, never saying anything good, never saying anything constructive. That tears people apart. Verse 31. Being bitter and resentful and speaking evil against them, slandering them calling them names, dragging their reputation through the mud, bringing them low, discrediting them. This, this tears people apart. The, 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 these, are, these are things that do not bring people together. These are things that divide. These do not construct relationships. They pit one against the other, and they tear down, and they destroy. Verse 32. And I have to put this in the, in the, I have to inverse it. Being unkind, being rough, and being unforgiving or ungentle, uh, uh, um, uncompassionate, unforgiving, ungracious. That doesn't bring people together. It tears people apart. All of these, all of these sins that Paul has been mentioning since, I think, verse 25 and on, these are all vices that are directly opposed and they work against the divine work of the Holy Spirit in producing unity among the people of God. And I, I can see now how he is rightfully grieved when these things take place and his work is undermined. It's so contrary to his blessed work, which... He is so, you know, he is not just a force. He is, he is God and he is personally involved in this divine work. And he takes it so seriously. I mean, these, these are people that Jesus bled and died for in order to bring them together. So, yeah, if the Son of God did paid such a drastic price to unite people, I would say the Holy Spirit takes that unity very seriously. And now look where Paul goes from here. 
Look at verses 19 to 21. And no, I'm not preaching these verses. This, we'll do this next week. But I just want you to see, I want you to see I'm not just pulling this all out of thin air. And, and this is where Paul takes us. Look at verse 19 to 21. I want you to see he's bringing out the one another's, right? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another. It's a one another sandwich, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I, 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 can't, I can't go through those three verses in 15 minutes. Does being spirit-filled, ought it to produce holiness? Yes, of course. Ought being spirit-filled to produce purity and and all the virtues found in Galatians 5:22 absolutely i'm not i'm not downplaying that at all but i want you to see how vitally integral to being spirit filled and spirit driven and spirit influenced is how we esteem the unity that the triune god is concerned with building amongst his people and so we would we would do well to rightfully ask how do i how do I relate to one another? How do I, how do I look at others? How do I value them? And how does my walk impact their walk? Do I have a positive impact on others? Do others, are others in a better place as a result of me being around them? Are others brought closer to the Lord because of what I do and what I say? Or do I have a negative impact? Am I bitter? Am I cynical? Am I critical? Am I tearing down more than I'm building up? If that is where you are, or that's where you've been, then today is the day to repent and be forgiven of those sins. And you need to be forgiven of those sins because God takes those sins seriously. But today is the day to be forgiven and to repent and to be filled with the Spirit so that His priorities become your priorities. You know, I, I, I've been in a couple churches, and I've seen, and I've, exp- I, I've, I've experienced cliques. I hate cliques. I've experienced hierarchies and circles. I've seen and I've felt what it's like to be a cast out and to have people with an air of superiority look down their long nose at someone else. I've seen arrogance in the church, in leadership, and in the pews. I've seen good men and good women who I know love the Lord and who give themselves in service to him and have dedicated their lives to serving him, I have seen them denigrated. I have seen them called frauds and clowns and hacks. And it breaks my heart. And it frustrates me. And more, what should be concerning to those who are guilty of this, ultimately, who cares what I think? I just showed you it grieves the Holy Spirit 
when unity in his church is treated with a laissez-faire attitude. Oh, well, it's just so-and-so. Who cares? Jesus was grieved with the constant infighting of his disciples, and he said to them, the world's going to know that you're my disciples because of a quality you have. And it's not by who's the best. It's by whether by how you love one another. And one thing that just... It was the highlight of my week was when one of our own messaged me this week and they said, you know, I hadn't I haven't seen so and so for a little bit. And I, I I so I called so and so and we talked and it was really good. And that was the highlight of my week. I, I it, it's over the phone, but it, like I just wanted to, you know, stand up and applaud that person. Yes, yes, yes. And let, I, let me exhort all of you to, to, to do the same. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, deliver us from deliver us from from the bondage of alcohol or the bondage of any any number of substances. Forgive us for the time for forgive us for not walking as we ought and not living as we ought and forgive us for not valuing one another as we ought. Lord, please deliver us from all the influences that undermine and hinder and work against the work that you are that you've begun in us and that you will be faithful to do. Let us not be found hindering or working against your your sovereign hand. Let us rather be found as those who work with you and for you. We are so blessed by the reality that no sin, no trespass, no no act of evil is too great that the blood of our Lord and Savior can't cover it. No sin is so sinful that forgiveness can't be found at the foot of the cross. And so I pray, Lord, with all my heart, I pray that if anyone is here, is is in that situation where they need to repent of their sin and they need to believe and they need to turn to you and they need to be forgiven, work in that heart. Work in that heart. Amen.